0: All right. So probably one of the most controversial issues that we have today in modern American politics is the issue of abortion. And there's been an ongoing debate within the country as a whole ever since Roe v. Wade came out. And this issue has largely gone back to the states, although not exclusively to the states. And uh, a lot of arguments within Republican circles on whether or not this is damaging Republican electoral chances and we look at the recent election with respect to what happened on the referendum in Ohio, when we look at what happened in Kentucky, when we look at what happened in Virginia, the argument seems to be that the abortion issue is hurting Republicans. And the question is, is what are we supposed to do about it? Like, first of all, is that that a fair analysis? Is that really the reason why we're losing elections? And then secondly, what should we do about it? Should we give up on the issue? Should we compromise on the issue? Should we try a new strategy? Well, we're going to be discussing all of those components of this topic on today's episode of Making the Argument brought to you by Good Ranchers.
1: Thank you, everyone, for joining us on this episode. I think we had some folks ask about this episode in our community chat. So thank you to everyone who did that. Uh, We're going to have a great episode today. If you'd like to join our community chat, you can go down to the link in the description and sign up there.
0: All right, as always I am your uh, host Nick Freitas member of the Virginia House of Delegates still there right, is that is that better Christian I, like I better? just want
2: to point out to the audience I nailed nailed uh, Tuesday's prediction. Okay,
0: first of all, it's not your turn to talk yet. He said I would win by 61%, and he was wrong. I'll let him defend himself later. He said 61%, and he was wrong. Also, with us today, back from, from being a little bit under the weather.
3: Yes, I see. My have beautiful a little bride. Cough, but I'm okay.
0: Queen of the Bees. Yep.
3: Good to be here.
0: All right. And now, our resident historian and supposedly. Political prognosticator. One of the
2: best in the state, baby. (laughs) I just want to point out, Nick got 60. You could go back to the previous
0: video and find my prediction.
2: Nick got 61.84%. So congratulations on your re-election, yeah. Delegate Freitas. So basically what
0: that means is you were wrong. You said 61%. All right. And then, of course, we have our producer of producers, Nick Hamilton, the good Hamilton, the one that doesn't like central banking. Thank you very much, Nick. This is an issue that I've worked in
1: you know, professionally in yeah. the pro-life movement, so it's very important to me. Uh, just a side note, we are training uh, so a new uh, production assistant today, our friend Nate. So I may be kind of back and forth. may have a few things to say here and there. Uh, but it's gonna be a great episode.
0: Great, great. And are you on camera today, Hamilton? I,
1: I am. We've got some technical things we're still working through. <laughs> Need to get a uh, get a new switcher, but uh, yes, I do have my computer. All right.
0: On. And so if you're looking at, if you're looking at Hamilton right now and you're wondering like what's with the what's with the eyeliner? Was he cosplaying Cleopatra? Yeah. No, that that is a battle wound from MMA. Yep. Um that w- that was well earned. Well earned. It w- hey, yeah. it's part of the process. Yeah. Yeah, you know, good we deal. We could
3: have Nate sit right behind your shoulder so everybody could see both of you. <laughs>
2: yeah. <laughs> Nate is also a really good guy. He's been friends with Nick and, and myself for what? Like a decade. I know with oh, Nick has yeah, no, been more no, no, than that. No,
0: yeah. Nate, Nate and Susie man. And, and his wife is my, my ever. best friend Besties. forever. Besties. Yes. Yeah, no, they would they would definitely we would all look. It all comes down to this, right? Good friends will help you move. Great friends will help you move a body. And phenomenal friends will help you get rid of the witnesses. And they're phenomenal friends. So (laughs)
2: whatever tiers higher than that will help you run a podcast.
0: All righty. So let's, let's get in. This is a, this is a weighty subject. The first thing that we kind of want to go over is, um, is there, is there any truth? Is there any truth to this idea that the abortion issue is actually hurting Republicans with respect to election? And I'm going to speak a little bit about this from the, the inside of this, because um, I am a, just, just so everyone knows upfront where I'm coming from, where my biases lie and everything else is, I I am an adamantly pro-life individual. And I have always run that way, and I've always advocated for that. I've carried legislation. This is one of the issues that I that I argue and debate on the floor. Um, I, I understand that it's an issue that invokes a lot of passion. And and I do think it's an issue that when when someone from my perspective is very passionate about it, that we should also be careful and strategic in the way that we discuss it. So I, I recognize all of that, because I believe that this is something that affects people on a very, very personal level. And I'll, I'll give some insight onto why it, it affects us on a personal level. Um, But I I will tell you this, this is a, this is an issue that a lot of Republicans are scared to death of, especially Republicans that are running in districts that are swing districts. Um, They almost, not all of them. But most of them don't want to touch this issue with a, a 10-foot pole. They they would much rather they, they were they were secretly glad when Roe v. Wade was put or when Roe v. Wade was the law of the land because you you were limited on what you could do on the state level. But as soon as Roe v. Wade was overturned, which I think was a great thing, and this issue came back down to the states, a lot of Republicans in swing districts who certainly advertise as being pro-life got worried about this topic because the Democrats seem to think of it as a, as a galvanizing issue for their side. And for anyone, and I'm I'm just going to say this to the pro-life side for anyone that wants to tell those people, Oh, well, you're just a coward or you're just in, you know, you're, you're weak or whatever it is. Um, I, I, I'm not talking about individual candidates. Maybe some of them are right, but you don't get to tell them that this isn't an issue that can cost them their election. It potentially can. Now, Something costing you your election is not an excuse to not fight for it. Can we just say that right up front? Something costing you an election is not an excuse to not fight for it. I I am pretty sure, and I'm not making a direct comparison right here, but I'm pretty sure anybody that said, gosh, slavery is just too touchy an issue. I don't think we should. I don't think we, does that mean you shouldn't have fought for it? Does that mean you shouldn't have fought to get rid of slavery because it might've been a touchy issue within your respective district? I hope most of us would look at that and be like, no, there's a moral imperative. Well, here's what needs to be understood. There are many um, on the pro-life movement, this is a moral imperative issue. There's also now some on the left, or I would say many on the left, that also believe this is a moral imperative issue. And so what you're seeing is um, this becoming one of the, the key fights. And I can tell you right now, from just coming out of an election cycle, if, if you were anywhere near a TV during the last two to three weeks, it seemed like all the Democrats were talking about was abortion. That that was the number one issue. I mean, what were they going to run on? Were they going to run on like the economy? Were they going to run on, you know, stopping crime? Like th- those aren't their things. They weren't going to run on, you know, cutting tax. No, they ran on abortion. This was the issue that they felt most galvanized their base, got people to come out to donate, to volunteer, to knock doors, to do all of it. And here's the bottom line. They're now in control of the Virginia General Assembly. They kept the Senate although we did pick up one seat in the Senate and they took the house of delegates back, although they only took it back by one seat. So I'm not saying it was a blowout. I'm not saying anything like that.
3: Definitely not a mandate. No,
0: no, not, not a mandate. mandate, They will treat it like a mandate because they treat any sort of majority as, as a mandate. But that's
3: the one thing is their side will go hard They will treat it like they got a mandate, even if they're hanging by a thread. Whereas our side, we'll have 16 seats and still have a bunch of cowards in there who refuse to do what needs to be done.
2: Tina's not at all passionate about this. Speaking of that, (laughs) Republicans actually should be pretty happy about Tuesday in Virginia because... We de facto picked up two seats in the state Senate because Emmett Hanger will no longer be there.
3: <laughs> Praise Jesus.
2: <laughs> that's, a, that, that's a joke that only a small number of our podcast members will probably know about. But Nick, t- th- th- the reason I bring this up is um, there's a lot, and, and you know this, yeah. right? There's, there's a lot of discussion, especially after Tuesday, what happened in Virginia and what happened in Ohio, for example. They had yeah. a referendum. Ohio that, was the big one. They had a referendum in Ohio, which it's really weird saying it's a red state, but it is now. I, that wasn't the case 10 years ago, but Ohio's a red state now. Yeah, They had a referendum there where they codified abortion into the, the state constitution. All the way up to birth. Actually, that's not true. That, yeah. Not all the they way did, up. There was some. They, they, they set up to fetal viability. Now,
3: oh, okay. pro-life
2: organizations will point out, right. well, they also included all these other exemptions that could be used as a really easy loophole in order to make right. it up to birth. But the um, point is is that they they they, they passed a a... You know, referend to, to the state constitution that, quite frankly, is way more liberal than the abortion standards in, say, Europe. Yeah. Right. Likewise, in Virginia. Um, Democrats flipped control of the House of Delegates by one seat and they won control of the Senate. So you have a lot of people, and I've seen it, like people like Ann Coulter on Twitter and stuff like that, and others that are like abortion is just going to be the single thing that will destroy the Republican Party in elections. We need to get over this obsession. By the way, Donald Trump has also come out and said some things about this as well to suggest that Republicans need to just drop the issue altogether, which is really interesting because he nominated the Supreme Court justices that overturned Roe v. Wade. Mm -hmm. But it's worth noting a couple things here. First off, Republicans won every single district in Virginia that voted for, for Joe Biden by eight points or were redder than that. Mm. So D plus eight seats and redder, Republicans won every single one. So this idea that Republicans got trounced in Virginia because of abortion. Oh, really? Is that the reason why they won a half dozen seats that voted for Joe Biden, some of which voted for Joe Biden by like almost double digit points? Right? So
3: and they, keep in mind this is after the redistricting and the redistricting was done like pretty much unilaterally by that one uh same guy master. that
2: redrew our our congressional well it was a couple people but yeah. but to the redistricting point Republicans lost in Virginia not because they ran bad campaigns or had terrible candidates in fact Democrats actually had some pretty terrible candidates Republicans lost in Virginia and I say this as somebody who has covered Virginia politics for well over a decade now yeah. at this point and has called election after election yeah. in Virginia, in some cases to within a quarter of a point. Yeah. Republicans did not lose in Virginia because of this particular issue or that particular issue, or because of candidate quality, let alone yard signs. There's a joke from yeah. last, last episode. No Republicans lost in Virginia ultimately because it's a Biden plus 10 state. Yeah, And the, re- and the lines that were drawn in it for both chambers of the legislature are weighted heavily towards Democrats. For example, the, the 20th seat, the tie-breaking seat in the state Senate that could have given Republicans control of the state Senate, voted bluer relative to the state than the results in 2021 for governor. So, for mm-hmm. example, the, the Loudoun seat. Glenn Youngkin won that Loudoun seat in 2021 by a smaller margin than he won the state, which means that the, the seat that determines control of the legislature is bluer than the state. And I just yeah. said that the state is Biden plus 10. Yeah. So... I, again, th- this idea that abortion was the thing that destroyed Republicans, if that's the case, then you need to explain how on earth Republicans won a bunch of Biden plus eight districts. And it doesn't just end in Virginia. Consider the fact that Ron DeSantis, uh, Kim Reynolds, um, uh, like, like both of those governors in Florida and Ohio have either campaigned on or signed very, very conservative laws on abortion DeSantis endorsed the 15-week ban that Republicans are now saying you know, oh, that's too extreme, despite the fact that that's more liberal than most countries in Europe. Well, and can, Kim Reynolds let, supports like a total ban.
0: Let, let's, talk, let's talk about that real quick, because one, one of the things that is a, a huge misnomer, it, when, when Roe v. Wade was, was overturned, it, it effectively changed nothing about existing abortion laws uh, in the United States, except for those states which had passed laws, which said if Roe v. Wade is overturned, this becomes the law of the state. Um, but it was, it was almost comical, to watch politicians in Europe saying we stand with the women of America. And then you look at Europe's abortion laws, like all of your abortion laws are are more strict than the United States with, with few exceptions. So, so to give you an idea for anybody that's wondering about this, um, if you look at Europe's abortion laws, um, almost every single country in Europe with the exception of, I think the Netherlands and the UK, um have stricter abortion laws than almost everywhere in the United States with the exception of Texas right so like Mississippi ha- has essentially the same abortion laws or-, or very close to the same abortion laws as France right so so this narrative that you see constantly coming out suggesting that oh my gosh America is is just it you know uh oh what's the name of that novel that they always like to to uh, the handmaid's tale America's just drifting into the handmaid's tale. Like, are you, are you serious right now? France, which for those of you keeping score at home, not exactly a bastion of conservative thought
3: Listen, has, I has stricter,
0: we- has stricter abortion laws than just about everywhere in the United States. So this idea as if, you know, we're living in the dark ages that, that is straight fear mongering on behalf of the, a lot of the candidates that we're running.
3: Listen, I do think, they're not wrong that we're drifting into the handmaid's tale, but it's actually completely flipped. So basically what you're what you have now are men renting women's wombs yeah. because they want to have a baby with their male partner. And then you also have trans people wanting to rent women's wombs. And at some point, they're going to feel like they have a right to have children and they're going to force women to let them use their wombs. Well, here, look, so, here's I the thing. They're the only ones because they're the only ones that can't have babies, so they're the only ones that could actually implement something like this, and they're the only ones on track to do so.
0: Well, here, here's the point. Here's the point I want to make. Okay, we, we, we've we've kind of talked about what what are the existing laws. We've seen what ha- we saw what happened in Kansas. We saw what happened in Ohio. Those can't be considered pro life victories, right? Like these are obviously something that the abortion industry, that the pro choice movement, is holding up as the these were successes. Um, and regardless of whether or not it's true, you have a lot of Republican candidates running in swing districts that are terrified to, to address this issue. So here, here's what I want to lay out. Because even within our comments section, you, know, you, see, you see the debate taking place. What, what I think has taken place is, and I, is I think the pro-choice movement has done an excellent job on the marketing um, of, of this issue. And you, you constantly see this. The, the the discussion is seldom about abortion. The discussion is about women's health or women's rights to do what they want with their body or reproductive rights or access to health care. Like that's that's yeah, how they you left out reproductive justice. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Now the <laughs> equity version of it, right? Like so so all of these all of these various uh, things. And we, and we saw this debate in Virginia, where the House Democrat Caucus put forward a resolution that they wanted to bring to the floor that would have. Um, a, a, they, they were basically trying to start a constitutional amendment process in Virginia that would have allowed for abortion up to the point of birth with no restrictions. Right now, when I pointed that out, I got told I was lying and I'm sitting here. We're looking at the resolution. Rob Bell, who was the chairman of, of courts, got up and said, you realize this is what this does. And one Democrat got up and said, well, no, no. The law in Virginia says that, you know, it's, it, you know, 31 weeks or whatever it is. And, and, Delegate Bell had to explain to her, yeah, that's what the law currently says, but when you pass this resolution and if it goes to referendum and it gets put into the constitution, that will override the existing law. That's that's how constitutional amendments work or that's how, you know, changes to the constitution work. Since that's the supreme law. And, and it was it was amazing because did, did anyone, did any one Democrat on the other side of the aisle then get up and say, oh, well, I didn't realize it was going to do that. I, I do think that there's certain restrictions that are reasonable. No, no, every single one of them got up, cheered, wanted this, wanted this resolution. And the reason why I point this out is I want us to be intellectually honest about what we're talking about. The position of the Democrat um, house, at least in Virginia. And I, I think we can extrapolate this across most of the country is not safe, legal, and rare, right? It, it's not under certain you know conditions. It's not for the first two trimesters. It is up to the point of birth without exception. That is the position of the Democrat. If you don't agree with that position, do me a favor. Don't get pissy with me because I'm now helping you to be aware of what the position is. And and guaranteed I'll have a Democrat come out of the check and goes, Well, that's not that's not my individual position. Oh, great. Are you setting policy for the DNC? Are you in the House of Delegates? Are you in State the House Senate? of Delegates? Are you are yeah, are you in the Senate? Are yeah, you you making- may not
3: believe that, but you definitely are voting for people who do believe it. And you voting for them is you giving your tacit approval. Yeah. So it, so
2: the point the Mr. point is- YouTube commenter is not the one making policy. Yeah. You know who is? Kathy Tran is making policy. Yeah.
3: Kathy Tran, who when she introduced abortion legislation that would have allowed abortion all the way up to the point where a baby is crowning, mm-hmm. watch the watch watch the um
0: the, the thing was the woman is the woman is dilating
3: dilating. Okay, yeah. fine. So listen, I mean, if you watch the testimony, it was brutal. And she said, yes, yes. All the way up to the point where the baby could be born healthy and alive. Yeah. Let's go ahead and allow the mom to kill it for no reason. I mean, at that point, you've got to deliver a baby anyway. Why would you want to deliver a dead baby? So, and then on top of that, Same day that she files that bill, she filed a bill that would have protected moth larva. It's true. Moth larva, you guys, is more important to her than a nine-month ready-to-be-born human baby. And oh, by the way, when she introduced all this stuff, she was still nursing her baby in the chamber.
2: Also, that same month, we had our governor, Ralph Northam, Governor Blackface, Governor COVID lockdown... Uh, decided to come out and say that oh well, conver- a conversation will ensue. Remember that fiasco? This was all yeah. in in February 2019 when this took
0: place. Oh no, I, I know because I brought up his comments because I was carrying the Born Alive Act that year, and and I said for everyone that's telling me that this isn't necessary, that we don't need this, I, I would like to quote a a rather famous neurosurgeon, pediatric neurosurgeon, and oh by the way, governor of this particular Commonwealth. Who said that the baby would be born and then a conversation? Baby would make comfortable and then a conversation would ensue. Here's here's what I here's what I want to get to the bottom of though. We, we all have our we all have our marketing tactics when it comes to explaining legislation or explaining um, our, our philosophical positions. Here's what I want to get to the bottom of first before we talk about this and that is what are we talking about? Because I see a lot of people. It's just a clump of cells. It's not human life. It's not fully developed. It's not that. Here's, here's what we're talking about. When does life begin? Well, don't take my word for it. We're going to go ahead and we're going to go ahead and bring up a, a couple of uh, authorities on this. Um, and one of my favorite one is when they talk about um, astrobiology, <laughs> right? Because it's the whole idea of like, how do we, how do we determine whether or not there's life on another planet or we life did a on a podcast on this? So here we go. <laughs> for, this is from NASA. Right? This is not from the Heritage Foundation, from NASA. For instance, living things are made of cells, maintain homeostasis, which is a stable internal environment, grow and develop, reproduce, metabolize, respond to the environment over time, evolve. Okay, although many non-living things could have a few of these characteristics, they do not have all of them. Well, that's that's a good place to start. Right. That's a good place to start. So let's ask this question. When we are talking about a fetus, which is just a Latin term for offspring, right? For anybody that thinks that this is, you know, something different. The, the question is, are, are they made of cells? Yes. Do they maintain a certain degree of homeostasis? Yes. Do they grow and develop? Yes. Do they reproduce? They have reproductive capacity. It's just in an early stage of development. That's true for pretty much everything. Um, do they metabolize? Yes. Do they respond to the environment? Yes. And do they over time evolve and or develop? Yes. And they have DNA, and they have DNA. Well, so I'm going to get to that. Don't don't get too far ahead of me. All right. So the question is: Is it at the moment of a moment of fertilization, are we talking about a living entity? The answer is yes. The answer is yes. They're, I'm sorry. Anybody that is trying to say, well, no, no, that's different. That no, no, no. We are talking about a living entity. You have to throw out science, that thing we're all supposed to trust. You have to throw out science to say that at the moment of fertilization, we're not talking about a living entity. We are. So now here's the second question. Because we make we distinguish between human life and non-human life. So at the moment of, of fertilization, are we talking about a human life or some other form of life? Well, the way that we distinguish between everything within the animal kingdom, right? As is we is we break it down based off of characteristics, but perhaps the most fundamental characteristic is this, deoxyribonucleic acid, DNA, right? If you are a human, you have human DNA. So the question is, okay, at the moment of fertilization, do, do you have ape DNA? Do you have parakeet DNA? No, you have human DNA. Here's my question. Has, has, at the moment of fertilization, fertilization, has that ever developed, gone through the gestational period, and then come out the other end as anything other than a human being? Has, has it ever come out? Did it evolve in the womb into a, a, a chimpanzee? No. Okay. So you have DNA at the moment that, of fertilization. Here's the question. How much DNA? Like, do you, get, do you get more DNA as, you, as you're going through the gestational period? No, all of the unique genetic code that makes you you and distinguishes you as human and, by the way, distinguishes you from every other human on the planet to include the human being that you're currently residing in, right? the thing that makes you unique, all of that is there. All of it. What do you say to the
2: counter argument that, and I've seen a couple people bring this up, that there's a difference between life and consciousness. And so the argument Well, being, wait, 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 we're going to get to all those okay. things, but I,
0: I want to lay this out first. The, the here's, why, here's why this is so important is because there's a third question before we ever get to consciousness, before we ever get to sentience, before we ever get to anything else. At the moment of fertilization, you are a living entity and you are a living human entity, right? I, I'm sorry. These things are- Anybody that is trying to debate this is coming up with arbitrary criteria like sentience, like consciousness, or whatever else it is. That is what you are. So the third question we ask is, do we treat all human life the same? Well, we could ask the question, innocent human life versus guilty human life. So we, we do believe that, at least in the West, we, we believe, and I, and I would say a lot of places in the world believe, that people should have equal protection before the law. So here's my question at the moment of fertilization and then conception and during the whole pregnancy, are you guilty of anything? Have you committed any acts of wrong? Have you violated any laws? Have you done anything to that? If the answer is no, and the answer has to be no, because you don't have agency over what you're doing at that point, then you are living, you are human and you are innocent. And so by any fair definition, what abortion is, is the willful destruction, because we're not talking about miscarriages, it is the willful destruction of innocent human life. That is what it is. Now, if you would like to make an argument that you think that there are certain conditions on which it is appropriate or morally necessary, then make that argument. But the argument I am tired of hearing from anybody out there is, well, it's, it's, not, it's not really a human being. Yes, it is. It, how, how ignorant do you have to be of human biology to make the argument, well, it's just a clump of cells? Guess what? So are you. You're just at a different stage of development. So do you want to make the argument that at certain stages of development, it's okay to kill innocent human life?
3: Well, that would, that would be ageism. So basically at the beginning of life, we can go ahead and kill it because it's so young. And there's a lot of people that make the argument that at the end of life, we can kill it because it's so old, you know, and, and that's, I feel like
2: the more complicated approach isn't the ageism though. It's, it's what I was trying to say earlier that that there's a difference between consciousness and life. Like I think it was Erwin Schrodinger who once said that, you know, something like, you know, we we kind of associate those two things to be the same but but he didn't necessarily think that they were and a good example of this could be a, a tree is life yeah. but unless you're a panpsychist you're probably not going to go out there and argue that a tree is conscious right and so i mean who knows there are definitely probably some physicists out there that would that would certainly try to argue that a tree is conscious but but usually people do not think that a tree is conscious now you could get into reasons why you don't think it is right. There's all these different theories for that, but the fact of the matter is, is that you know it's generally accepted that that chopping down a tree does not constitute you know you know crimes against well I can't say humanity right, but you know crimes against consciousness right. So the the argument that that somebody who's um like reluctantly pro-choice to quote uh, Dave Rubin out there yeah for, former you know lib on uh um the Young Turks who Got red pilled a little bit, moved to the right, and became almost a conservative in many respects. But he definitely is still on the left when it comes to abortion. Now he's not rabid about it and yeah. like attacking Republicans and calling them mean things. He will say his defense is, is that I'm reluctantly pro-choice because of all these other considerations out there that I just I I, I think we're creating more problems than solutions when we try to tackle them. And the argument for somebody like him might be that well. Granted, I might agree with you that it's life. And I might agree with you that if, if you know, to, to, to a point, we should restrict it, for example, if it can feel pain, right? So, like, he he might mm-hmm. say, I would oppose the Kathy Tran bill. Yeah. But he might take objection to banning abortion in the first trimester because he might argue that – and or people like him that are liberals but not leftists might argue that, well, it's it's not conscious and it might not feel pain. And until it does – all that you're doing is creating a bunch of legal headaches that are going to embolden radical leftists to, you know, monopolize the vote of women in order to win elections and then impose woke socialism on everybody.
0: Well, so, so let's, let's look at this, the, the idea of consciousness. So the question is, is that if consciousness is what, if consciousness is what separates the ability to arbitrarily take your life versus not being able to arbitrarily take your life, well, then when you're knocked unconscious, we can kill you, right? When you're asleep, we can kill you. The same thing, even the same when you've same got thing.
3: somebody that's, um, that's in some kind of a, a coma and there's like zero brain activity, there's always the whole, you know, do we pull the plug? Do we, do we artificially keep them alive or not? The thing, the reason why this would be a different situation from that is that you're pretty much guaranteed that, that at some point, this, this being will have consciousness. Whereas if somebody's, you know, in a coma or what, you don't have an absolute guarantee, and that that makes it easier for people to pull the plug. However, there have been cases where there is zero activity going on, and then the person wakes up. So yeah. even that's a hard one. Well, to sell. And, and,
0: the, and the problem is, is that the, it's this idea that if you're if you're unconscious, the other one is sentience. They like to talk about sentience, the cognitive ability to have feelings or be self aware or whatnot. Um, the problem is, is that once again, if if you're if you're in a coma. Are you truly sentient? If you, if, you, if you are not aware, if you don't have the uh, sufficient brain activity at that particular point to be aware, are you therefore not a human anymore? Have you lost your humanity? And, and here's the issue with every single argument that gets brought up to draw what I believe are arbitrary lines. The moment you do it, you are diminishing the concept of innocent human life and it's it being worthy of protection. And, and so the arguments that you, the arguments sometimes will bring it up, well, what if someone is, what if someone is in a coma and they're on life support? Well, they're in a coma, they're on life support. If someone says, I have a do not resuscitate order because the only thing keeping me alive is machines, well, then that that's not the same thing as a baby in the womb, now is it? And, and so any sort of any, any one of those arguments, the problem is, is that you, you can do what they call an a logic, a reductio ad absurdum. You you can basically carry it out to its logical conclusion and demonstrate a position that essentially no one would take. Uh, ben Shapiro did this to somebody that said, well, what about sentience? And he goes, okay, if you're in a coma, can I stab you to death? Well, no, like, oh, good. I'm, I'm glad, I'm glad I can't murder you if you're in a coma. I also don't think you should be able to murder someone in, in the first trimester in a pregnancy. All right, so that that's one series of arguments that often often comes from the the pro-choice crowd is this whole idea of well you're you're not a you're not a full human being yet. Okay? What causes you to be a full human being? And every time they come up with a criteria, consciousness, sentience, separation from the mother, whatever it is, it ends up being somewhat arbitrary and you can easily reduce it to absurdity. So what's the second argument that they always come up with? Well, the second argument is the idea of bodily autonomy. And and here's <laughs> that flew out the window
2: in the last 3 years yeah. and we all know the reason why because the same people making the bodily autonomy argument were also in favor of some extremely yeah. draconian and oh, quite yeah. frankly evil and tyrannical policies
0: when when it came when it came to you know you know, mandatory vaccinations and things like that. All of a sudden, bodily autonomy was not a thing. Um, well, look before I before I go into this. Before I go into this, and I'm not going to do I'm not going to do a swanky little you know uh, segue this time. All right, we just want to go ahead and thank our sponsor for this show. I want to thank Good Ranchers. Um, if you are interested in in getting some very very quality steak poultry, you know, wild caught seafood. And of course my personal favorite, well, and and chicken breast, that's actually Christian's favorite. And of course, bacon, more bacon,
2: right? That's my favorite bacon,
0: (laughs) bacon, good ranch. If you use promo code Nick, you're going to get $15 off your order. And if you order one of their subscriptions, here's what you're going to get. This is a fantastic deal. You can save up to 480 bucks on this. You save up one of their, uh, their subscriptions every single time right your your meat comes to your door by the way your meat comes to your door straight from from the farm to good ranchers to you right when it gets there you're going to get to choose in that order do you want free top sirloin do you want free chicken breast do you want free wild caught salmon that's that would be Tina's pick or do you want free bacon which again you can wrap everything else in so This is an outstanding deal from Good Ranchers. Again, use promo code Nick, $15 off, free shipping. And if you sign up for one of the subscriptions, you're going to get this amazing deal too where you get to pick something free that they're going to throw in there along with your subscription. Plus, if you are looking, if you got that person that is incredibly hard to shop for, right, you can go to their gift boxes. Good Ranchers now has gift boxes. like You can just... Who, who on your shopping list are you thinking to myself, like, this this person's impossible? Well, they're not impossible anymore. Good Ranchers is taking care of it for you. Again, you're going to get a good quality product. Uh, plus, it's a great way to support the show, right? If you want to support this show, support yourself, support a friend you want to give a great gift to, Good Ranchers, promo code Nick, $15 off, free shipping, $480 in free meat. If you sign up for one of their subscriptions, you get to pick one of those free things that they're going to send you. It's all really good. Please go check out Good Ranchers at GoodRanchers.com. Okay.
3: Hold on. Okay. I want to address a question. Brian Betts said, um, what about the point of viability? Like the machine, the mother's body is needed to keep the baby alive until the point of viability. I hate the viability (laughs) argument because there are so many people in our society that need others to survive. They use the work and the skill and the, and everything else from other people in order to survive. So are they not viable on top of that? No baby is viable without outside care, even after they are born. Like, they don't walk out of the womb eating and feeding themselves and going to work and clothing themselves. They, they don't do any of that. They still need medical care. They still need a, a, a parent or someone to feed them. So all we're talking about is is some point where, oh, the baby will not die if, if outside the womb. Well, basically, what's your definition of viability and and how gray is that area because if your argument is viability is the point at which our technological advances have met up with biology in such a way we can keep this child alive outside the womb outside of where it should be is in the womb we can then keep the child outside with artificial means well at that point Viability is so subjective that we could have leaps and bounds in scientific discovery, technology, everything else. And viability changes wildly based on that. Viability is much younger now than it was before. And I would also argue we've got a lot of unviable people in society today. And are you advocating for aborting them?
0: So... I think here's the other, so I'm, I'm going to look at Brian's question um, just as an honest question from the whole idea, because this, this goes to the, the original thing I was saying is that's the whole bodily autonomy argument. And the bodily autonomy argument is that nobody else should have a right to use my body in a way that I don't want them to. Right. And that, that is an argument that for someone like me who, you know, aspires or, or um you know, I'm, I'm very sympathetic to a lot of like libertarian style arguments on things. I, I understand the nature of that argument, but here's my response to it. And it's kind of twofold. One, when you when you use the bodily autonomy argument, when you say my body, my choice, my body, my choice, if you really think about it, is actually a pro-life argument. And here's the reason why. As soon as you say my body, my choice, what you're essentially asserting is bodily autonomy, but you're also assuming responsibility over your body. What you're saying is, is that because it's mine, nobody else should be able to interfere with it. Right. And I I think most of us are sympathetic for that, to that argument. But the real question you have to ask back to them is, but why, why do you have bodily on? Why, why is this, why is this some sort of sacred, you know, uh, like belief? Why? It certainly doesn't come from atheism. Right. That doesn't come from, you know, you're no, you're just, you're just (laughs) molecules in motion, man. That's it. You're just responding to stimuli and chemicals. So, so what is this? What is this philosophical concept that because it's your body, other people shouldn't mess with it? Well, that's rooted in the idea that you are sacred. Like you have control over your own body and therefore other people shouldn't violate it. So then that begs the question, then are you also responsible for what you do with your body? And presumably, yes, especially we, we, we absolutely believe this when people have a certain degree of cognitive ability to be able to make these decisions. So here's my question. Is the body that you have, your unique DNA, your unique characteristics, is that separate from the baby in the womb? And the answer is yes. Yeah, they're connected through an umbilical cord and the, and the baby requires to be in the mother as, as part of the gestational process, which has always existed, right? Always existed. So let's not pretend like this is something that we're not aware of how it works. So the question is is how did the baby get there? Well, in the vast 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 majority of cases, the way that the baby got there was a, a, a woman and a man. Now, I understand there's issues of rape, we're going to get to that, but in the vast majority of cases what happened? A woman used her body and she made a choice. She made a choice to engage in a voluntary act with another with a man that could bring about the absolute dependency of a human being upon her person, right? Called pregnancy. She made a choice and she, and she analyzed that because benefit analysis, regardless of whether or not she wanted to have children, regardless of whether or not he wanted to have children, they both decided this is worth it. So I'm going to do it. Well, let me ask you a question. If I cross the table right now and I punch Christian in the face,
2: (laughs) please don't do that. Yeah.
0: Okay. And he hits me back. We treat my action toward him very different than his action toward me, right?
3: You're the aggressor. Unless uh, no, reason-
2: and, and, and we're talking about Israel and Palestine. Yeah. <laughs> first
0: <laughs>
3: the, cause. The, re- the it's, reason, it's the reason cause. why it's,
0: it's the whole concept of first cause. So if, if a man and a woman decided to engage in an activity which brings about the absolute dependency of a child upon her person, and they choose to do it, and then you come back later and say, well, I didn't consent to the pregnancy. I only consented to the sex. That's a little bit like saying I consented the Oreos, but I didn't consent to the calories. Right? I can send to the Oreo, but I didn't, can, I I can it to the meal, but I didn't consent to the fact that I didn't like the hey, meal. Hey,
3: Don't be giving them any ideas, babe. They'll use that.
0: <laughs> the, so, so the whole, the whole point of this is, is that the bodily autonomy doesn't work. Once you recognize that there's actually two into there's, there's two elements here with their own autonomy that doesn't, obviously the baby is dependent on the mother, right? But it still has its own unique DNA. It is its own individual. It's its own person. It just needs the mother's body. And this is just the way the process works. Right, if, if somebody decided to keep the baby and then refused to feed the baby, we wouldn't say, well, yeah, you consented to having a kid, but you didn't consent to taking care of the child. We wouldn't say that. We would hold you legally liable for neglect and abuse. So so this whole idea of the bodily autonomy argument doesn't make sense. In fact, it undermines the whole pro choice position. And then when it comes to the viability, as Tina already stated, the problem there is, once again, you're coming up with an arbitrary distinction. You're saying, it's my body, it's my choice. But then when you make a choice with your body and you don't like the consequences, somebody else now has to pay the price for the consequences. That's not the way this works. We consider that to be unjust in every other aspect of society, except in this one, one situation. So the viability argument is, is once again, it doesn't diminish the overall humanity of the baby. And so you can't get away from the argument that essentially what you're doing is still destroying innocent human life for convenience. You can't get around it. That's the argument you're making. Viability or no viability. That's the argument you're making. And what I'm the argument I'm going to make back is, is that you haven't addressed the primary moral concern about what is taking place right now. You haven't done it. Let's get to some of the super chats. So uh, Isaac Gorski, thank you very much, Isaac, for the super chat. He goes, unpopular opinion, but the what about rape and incest argument is a poor argument. While incest is gross, sometimes it's consensual. So if Ilhan Omar and her brother want to keep the baby, let them. (laughs) (laughs) That last part. (laughs) Yeah. And then Susie Clancy, thank you very much. First super chat. And, and she says, dude, not an argument. My mother was raped, which guess what that makes me. And and this is something that has, has come up before with and the Susie, idea.
3: Susie actually mentioned earlier in the chat that she, her mother had tried to abort her. And that, she, so since she's the product of rape and her mother tried to abort her, she's exactly who we're talking about right now yeah. with, in the case of, of incest and rape, you know, it it's, it's definitely one of those things where it's like, okay, so what did the child do though and and i want to say too that basically abortionists protect rapists so if you're concerned about the rape of women and abortion as a result of rape abortionists protect rapists they they protect these people and they protect like like family members who have committed incest against their little young underage people. And you know, what's really crazy to me is as much as they want to sit here and and act like they're doing these girls, these big favors, I don't see anything where they're collecting DNA on these predators. If a girl's underage and they say, Oh, well this is rape or this is incest or whatever. Why are they not collecting DNA and prosecuting the crap out of the people who offended against these girls?
1: And the abortion pill as well. Right. That that is a huge protector against rapists. Yes. Yes.
0: So the and now now look I'm 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 trying to keep everything lined up here. Um, so I I think we've addressed the consciousness argument. I think we've addressed the sentient argument. I think we've addressed the bodily autonomy argument. I think we've addressed the viability argument. Uh, now again some people might might still want to take those positions. The the thing that I'm trying to illustrate here is that if you decide to take that position, what I think needs to be acknowledged is that you are taking a morally deficient position because in none of those none of those excuses none of those exemptions actually addresses the fact that you're still destroying innocent human life. None of them. And even worse, you're destroying innocent human life for convenience. Now, people get upset when I say that. But when we say convenience, what we mean is it's not, it's not a requirement. So, for instance, if, if somebody has like a tubal pregnancy, that baby is not going to survive. And if they don't remove it, the mother could die. Right? So, we, we make a distinction there. We say that that this this the baby now has to be removed because it's not it's not it's not going to survive and it being there could could cause the mother to die so it has to be removed. We all agree on that. There's there's no issues with that. I don't know of a single pro life person or organization that has ever argued to the contrary of that. I mean, well, but, and, but, and that's a procedure
3: but, where they remove the um, fallopian tube, and the result of removing the fallopian tube is that the baby does not survive. There's a big difference between going in, you know burning alive a baby and ripping it out of the womb versus going in and performing a surgical procedure and the result of that. So there is a, a difference.
0: So the, the, the thing I was trying to end on with that was the, this idea that um, in, in those circumstances, that's, that's a necessity to save life, right? <clears throat> when you say, I don't feel equipped to be a parent, or I don't know if I'm financially ready, or I have other things that I want to do with my life. That's, that's a convenience argument right now. Now you may be in a position where you feel like that is a very strong argument for your overall life goals or your current position, or maybe you, you cannot stand the father and and you don't want to raise a kid with them. I, I can understand all of that. It's still a convenience issue. And the reason why it's a convenience issue is because you still could do it. It's not a threat to your life or a significant threat to your health. You could still do it. You just don't like the consequences of having to do it. That's a convenience issue. Right, So every single one of these arguments that we've addressed so far, consciousness, viability, sentience, everything, destruction of innocent human life for convenience. Now, the question that oftentimes comes up, and we're going to address this, we've we've already seen this uh, a little bit in the chat, is the whole idea of what happens when it's rape. Because now you have a situation where somebody got pregnant, not because of their voluntary, their bodily autonomy was violated by the rapist. And that resulted in a pregnancy. And and this is a this is a difficult one because th- there's obviously a, a very different situation when two people engage in an activity knowing it's a possibility and do it anyway versus when a woman is um, you know raped by someone she didn't make that decision and now there's uh, the the child of the rapist right and her are is, is present and so this is something where I think anybody that can't look at that situation with a a hefty degree of sympathy. And say, this is, this is horrible that this happened to this woman. Anybody that can't do that and can just flippantly say, oh, well, you know, I, I'm sorry, I, I don't think you're really grasping the impact that this is going to have on this woman's life because it's not just simply the, the act of the rape that take place, but now it is the process of, of carrying this child and delivering the child and everything else. But here's, here's what I'm going to say back in response to that. Is the child the guilty party in this situation? What other situations in society, when one person commits a crime, do we make an innocent third party pay for the consequences of that crime?
2: In every single aspect of woke ideology, we do that.
0: Well, <laughs> and, and, we, and, and last time I checked, we're not big fans of woke ideology. No. The, 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 point, the point that I want people to understand is that it has become taboo for anybody in the conservative movement to even say, well, yes, even in that situation killing an innocent human life is inappropriate and it, and it's because of the horrendous act that took to the woman. The question that I have is, is that, is it really unreasonable? Is it unreasonable to take the position that we believe that there should be compassion for both the victim, the mother and the child, and that there should be horrendous penalties for the rapist? I don't think that's an unreasonable position to take. I understand why it is so horrendous for people to consider, but again, when you've had friends that were conceived in in that, in those circumstances. And that friend is someone who is a wonderful wife and mother and an incredible person. And to suggest that you don't have a right to exist because of the circumstances of how you were conceived. You had no say over what your father did to your mother You played no part, no role in that violation, but because you are a byproduct of it, you no longer deserve to exist. The fact that you are a human being, the fact that you are innocent, none of that will be taken into consideration because of the circumstances of your conception. I can't, I can't agree with that. I can't agree with that. And, and I understand speaking about this as a man, I'll never, I'll never know what it's like to be a woman in that position. I'll never know that. And I fully recognize that. But if you're you're asking me to now say, Nick, because you can't ever conceive of what this would be like, you are not allowed to have an opinion on whether or not innocent human life can be punished for the actions of a third party. That's the part where I'm going to disagree with you. We do this all the time. There's any number of scenarios that you might never find yourself in that we still go through a logical thought process. That we apply compassion and empathy and sympathy and then look at the data, look at the facts and then come to a conclusion, which is hopefully both rational and moral with respect to what the appropriate course of action is. So the argument that I'm going to make once again is that the problem is, is that if you can't get past the argument, if you, if you cannot come up with some sort of proof that what you're doing is not destroying innocent human life, well then yeah, I'm going to continually come back and say morally I think there is a huge problem here. And for someone that believes that the state does not exist to provide people with everything that they want, the state does not exist, at least it shouldn't exist, to to play mommy and daddy for everybody, that the state exists for very, very specific purposes. And that purpose is largely built around the idea of protecting innocent human life from those who would harm or exploit it. Abortion is one of the if not w- one of the greatest sins that a government can ever commit against its own population by allowing for it to exist and in the case of the United States, oftentimes subsidizing it. And I know that's an unpopular opinion, but at least you know exactly where I stand.
2: We had a um, or I, I had a, a friend text me in the middle of the show who's watching right now and um, I, I I think this is actually a pretty interesting idea. He says that uh, quote, I think we should fight for a bill to make it unlawful for the biological father to coerce by any means the mother into obtaining an abortion. The libs would have a hard time fighting that one because of the way that they frame the abortion issue being about women's choices. And then I also pointed out and also because the way that they constantly incessantly attack men for everything, too. Yeah. Um, I don't know if I, that that's an that's an angle
0: that I didn't necessarily think of before. Um. Well, there's a, there's a big joke where it's like, oh, okay, fine. Then you're, you're going to require a woman to carry the child. Well, then we require the, the, the father to start paying child support all the way through birth. And I looked at or like all the way during the pregnancy. And I looked at him I'm like, I agree to your terms. Are we done? Cause I, I agree to your I terms. I have a
2: way more radical proposal. It's this thing called marriage. Yeah.
0: Well, Brett, Brian Betts said – Brian and, I, and look, Brian, Brian Betts, I really appreciate Brian Betts' presence both within our community chat and always on here as well because um, I, I do think he does a, a, a very good job of trying to provide an, an honest – Um, argument from the other side of this, but he goes, Nick, yes, morally there is a problem, but that's between them and God. Okay. Then I can say the same thing for murder. I can say the same thing for slavery. I can say the same thing for rape, child abuse. Do you want to know why here, here's the biggest issue, right? And, and again, for someone that is very sympathetic to libertarian philosophy on a number of things, what's the distinction? Where, where do I believe the state intervenes in something that is immoral versus, allowing people the freedom to make their own decisions. And for me, the marker is the whole aggression principle, right? It's the non-aggression principle. If I am, if I am actively doing something to deprive you of life, liberty, or property, I see that as a proper role for the state to come in and defend the innocent party against the guilty party or against the perpetrator. Right? So if you're getting drunk, I don't necessarily believe that the government should come into your house and say, you're not allowed to get drunk, even though I might believe that's immoral, right? Or if you're, or if you're, doing any number of things that I might not agree with. If you're having sex out of wedlock, I might say that's immoral. I don't think the government should like punish you for doing it. All right. But the point is, is that there is a distinction between that, which are voluntary actions between people and that, which are involuntary actions between people. And largely I see the role of the state is intervening during those involuntary actions. When one person is again, using their power to attempt to deprive another human being of liberty, life, liberty, or property. And in the case of abortion, that's like, so it's not good enough to just say, well, the morality is between them and God, because if you're going to, if you're going to use that as an overriding philosophy, then that applies to the rapist, that applies to the murderer, that applies to the the slaveholder. And I certainly don't think it should apply to those things either.
3: Right. I mean, why, why else would it be completely illegal and wrong? And everybody can agree that a, a woman should not give birth to her baby and then throw it in a dumpster, you know, yeah. and, and kill it. Why is that? Not something that's just between her and God, then. It, so basically, if it's just between her and God, whether she kills the baby in the womb or or and then it's it's not just between her and God after the womb, you're making some kind of a distinction that really shouldn't exist because the the baby's location may have changed, the ba- where the baby's residing may have changed, but nothing else fundamentally changed for that baby. So if she went and aborted the baby 10 minutes before she gives birth versus throws her baby in a dumpster right after birth. Why do you make any distinction between that at all? Because value wise to the baby, it's not just between her and God, it's between her, the baby and God. And, and when bad things are happening to people, we're supposed to step in and protect the innocent. That's what we do. And we didn't, like, I would, I would venture to say that you would never, ever say, oh, well, these slave owners, that's between them and God. I, I wouldn't do slavery for myself. It's wrong.
0: Right. Uh, well,
3: but, but that's between them and God. We would never say that. They needed help. They needed to be freed because it was wrong.
0: Well, and let's, let's make a distinction because Rocky top Tom, who again, another, another great member of our community here said by these arguments, the state should have the right to force you to vaccinate. See the problem here. No. And here's why here, here's the, here's the distinction. Um, it is one thing to tell someone, um, it, by the state, the state saying, I'm going to force you to vaccinate because I believe it will be better for all of society is not the same thing as the state saying it is okay to kill somebody because you don't want to deal with them. But that, that is not even close to being the same thing. It, it is, it is inherently immoral for the state to tell you, you have to inject yourself with this vaccine in order to keep everybody else safe you know, because there's, there's any number of ways you could actually help to keep other people safe. Not to mention the fact that the government doesn't always give it, get it right with vaccines.
3: And clearly didn't on this one. (laughs)
0: Right. So, so no, this argument doesn't apply over because notice what I said, I didn't say that, um, you know, in order to help someone, the government needs to come in and force you to, you know, pay money to help this other person, or this government needs to force you to take care of this other person. I even say that, what I said is the government cannot come in and tell you, right, that it is okay for you to now violate somebody else's life, liberty, or property under these special these special circumstances. Right? That, that's the distinction here. It's, it's preventing you from violating someone else's stuff, not proactively telling you you have to do all of these other things in order to just exist. That's, that's not the same. Okay. Um, let's go. We got a couple of, uh, got a couple of different super chats here. I want to get to Mark Robinson. Thank you very much. Said in the end, we'll have to answer to God. Why did you kill the life I gave you? I, I believe that. I mean, people that don't believe that feel like they're never going to have to, you know, potentially answer to anyone, but, um, you know, it, it'll be, I think some people will be surprised. Uh, Isaac Gorski said, if the pro-murder baby side argues that you aren't a full human being until you're older anyways, then why do they care so much about Palestinian babies? I mean, I would, I would say We've done whole
2: podcasts on this one. I,
0: I, w- I would say that again, part of part of the issue that I think that we're running into here is that I believe you have people like Brian, for instance, that are, are probably, you know, on the left of this issue um, that they look at it as this is a practical consideration um, and, Some of this has to do with practically what can the government do? What are the implications, et cetera? And then you have other people that make horribly intellectually dishonest argument. Can you scroll back up real quick? Horribly intellectually dishonest arguments where one minute it's, it's, you know, shout your abortion. And the next minute it's like, Oh, I can't believe this, this horrendous act. And it's like, okay, well, can you please, can you please explain to me the logical consistency? And the answer is there isn't any because logical consistency is not important to somebody that's making that sort of argument.
2: I I mean, we've gotten to a point where, have you see, Have you seen the new banners that university students are walking around with? Reproductive justice means free Palestine yeah <laughs> All right. We got leftism doesn't need to make sense in order to get the job done.
0: John H. This is clever. I've seen this before, too. Can we please get some common sense abortion control, universal checks, mandatory waiting periods, and no one needs a late term assault abortion? Um, Yeah, it's kind of funny how the same arguments that are that are used uh, as an argument to infringe on people's civil liberties in order to, quote, protect society. When all of a sudden they're applied to this in a situation where somebody is going to die as a result of the action. Well, no, then none of those checks and none of those restrictions apply and and it's again it's it's a complete lack of intellectual honesty and consistency across the board. Uh Joey W says seems like it all hinges on when life begins. If we all agreed, go ahead and scroll down. I can't read it. Yeah. If we all agreed on that, then the line would be easy to draw. Joey, let me tell you this right now. I used to believe that. I used to believe because again, I I was born I was born in 79. Um, I remember before we had all these fancy 3D ultrasounds, before we had all this other stuff, like I I remember thinking there's going to come, there's going to come a point where the, where the technological advancement and, and, and since, since I've been born, we've mapped the human genome. We have, you know, these incredibly high-tech ultrasounds. We know more about human biology than we've ever known before. We have more technology uh, to to actually understand what's going on in the earliest stages of life than we ever have before. And I'm telling you right now, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter to so many people because this isn't a question of when life begins. I always thought that would be it. I always thought that would be it. But the moment you show someone incontrovertible evidence that it is a human being, they don't say, oh my gosh, I didn't realize. Let me change my opinion. They just shift to a different argument. Okay, well, it's a human being, but it's not sentient. And then you show them why the sentient argument doesn't work. Okay, well, it's not conscious. Then you show them the conscious argument doesn't work. Well, viability. And you show them why that doesn't work. Well, bodily autonomy. You show them why that doesn't work. And then they just start yelling at you and calling you a bigot. And, and saying you're a sexist and you just want to strip women away of their rights. I, I had somebody once that's like, you know, you know, I, I wish, Nick, Nick, I wish you believed that women should, you know, be free to have, you know, control over their own body. I said, oh, I absolutely do. I totally do. I totally support a, a woman's right over her own body. Absolutely. Totally support access to healthcare. To- totally support reproductive rights. Totally support all of it. No, you don't. What do you mean? What do you mean I don't? Where, where where do I not support that? Well, abortion. Oh, oh. So we're not talking about a broad category of a woman having control over her own body. We're not talking about a broad category of, of access to healthcare. We're not talking about a broad category of reproductive. We're talking about one thing: abortion. The willful destruction of an innocent human life. That's what we're talking about. I got good news for you. I don't believe anybody has that right. I don't believe anybody has the right to use their body to willfully end the life of another human being. I just don't believe in that. Do you? And then all of a sudden this, the conversation changes and we go through things. But I'm telling you right now, I wish it was that simple. I really do. But the thing, I, and then we're going to get to this later on, on, where do we go from here? Because electorally, we are losing on this issue. We are, there's, there's no two, there's no two ways about it. And I'm going to push back. I'm sure everything I've said up to this point, the pro-life movement really appreciates. I'm probably going to say some things after this that they don't appreciate. And all I can tell you is that I am more dedicated now to this issue than I have ever been before. But I am also on the front lines of this and I'm watching what's happening. And I am telling you, if we care about this issue, we better start analyzing what's going wrong and we better do it pretty dang quick. Because what we're currently doing isn't working. And I'm not going to be told that I am less dedicated because I refuse to continue to push forward a strategy that isn't working. All right, let's get to a couple more um, super chats here. T Rash says Legal argument. If a pregnant woman is killed, does that warrant two counts of murder, manslaughter? If yes, where does that put abortion? In some states, it does. In other states, they have actually tried to remove that for just that reason. Isn't it amazing? That in some places they have fought against the idea that murdering a pregnant woman is double homicide simply because they don't want it to even touch. They don't want the, the, even the, the hint of a philosophical argument that that would be a legally, intellectually inconsistent position to take. Totally legally inconsistent. And so they would rather a situation where a pregnant woman is murdered and her baby is lost and the perpetrator not be prosecuted for double homicide. They would rather that scenario than there be anything that could potentially come and, and, and harm this new sacrament of abortion. Uh, Jim says, Raj, I was 13 and had an abortion and the fetal matter was used to prosecute my rapist. So I am glad that I was able to have my abortion. J mom, here's all I will say. I think um, rape, rape is always absolutely horrendous. When someone rapes a child, I, I think there's, there's even a, a secondary element there that is is truly horrific. Um, I got to tell you though, like I, I I'm not gonna I'm not gonna sit here and and um, lecture you, uh, and I'm certainly not sitting in judgment of you, because again I don't know what it's like to be in that position. I'm glad the rapist was caught. I'm sorry that the baby had to die in order to do it. Um, and so I'm just gonna try to be consistent in that but one of the things that I I do want to stress here, and this is a good point to stress this. I'm not going to sit in judgment of uh, a woman that has had an abortion. I will sit in judgment of the action because that's what all of us do. We judge actions. And for anybody that will now try to pull up scripture and say, well, Jesus said not to judge. No, (laughs) Jesus said to pull the plank out of your own eye so that you can see clearly to help your friend so that you could judge correctly. Christ said, we're not to judge the heart. That's not our province. I can't judge the heart of another human being that belongs to God and God alone, but all of us judge actions. And here's how you know, that's true because the moment someone tells you, you shouldn't judge, you know what they've just done made a judgment call. They've just judged your judgment. It is impossible to go through life without judging. It is a necessary component of what we do. The question is, is are we judging rightly? What standards are we using? What data are we using? Are are we using a logical and and, and morally consistent thought process? Are we taking into account different perspectives, different ideas, different experiences? All of that is relevant and all of that is necessary in order to judge correctly. But we still, at the end of the day, have to make a judgment call on these things and we have to. So I am very glad that your rapist was convicted, but I, I do mourn for the child that had to be lost in the process. And I mourn for you as well, because that never should have happened to you. Okay. I think we've gone through all of our super chats. Um, Here's the part I want to talk about next. It's kind of a good segue into next part. And and that is the cultural fight here. How do we effectively uh, fight for this? There are any number of issues where I will say that I disagree with something morally. So again, anybody that's been following me for a while knows that I'm a Christian and Christianity has a number of things to say about morality uh, along all fronts. Perhaps the one that is most unpopular right now is what Christianity has to say about sexual morality. And here's what I'll say. I believe what Scripture says about sexual morality. Now, does that mean I believe that the government should then come in and punish you or imprison you because you do something else? So, for, for instance, fornication. I don't think the government should put you in jail for that. I don't think they should fine you for that. Not because I think it's okay, but because I make a distinction with respect to the government's role versus the individual's role versus the family's role versus the church's role. And that's the position I take on that. Now, when it comes to abortion, I do believe the government has a role. Why? Because an innocent human life is being destroyed. And so I do believe it's a legitimate function of government to step in and say, you can't destroy innocent human life. That's what all of our murder laws are based off of. That's what all of our laws with respect to one person hurting another person, are based off of. And I will never make any apology for taking that position because I think it's morally and intellectually consistent. Here's what I will say, though. The reason why we are losing all of these legal battles is because we have lost the cultural battle. And you have some organizations that are out there trying to do a good job for that live action, Students for Life. Um, A lot of these groups are going out there and they are really putting everything into making a good argument for why somebody shouldn't choose abortion. And I really appreciate the work that they're doing. Kristen Hawkins, um, I I consider to be a friend. I think she does a great job. I was uh, recently on the Lila Rose uh, podcast. That'll be coming out here shortly. Um, I, I think they do very good work. There's a lot of other groups. We have the Virginia Society for Human Life here in Virginia. We have National Right to Life. There's all these other groups. Here's what I will say, though. If the argument that we're trying to make is purely a legal one, we're going to continue to lose. And I think there's a a couple of reasons for that. Um, More and more women have had abortions. And I think when someone who has had an abortion listens to the arguments that we make, I think they feel as if we are condemning them or that we are judging them. And so there's two things that happen to any person, man or woman, but we're talking about abortion here and this uniquely affects women. There's two things that happen whenever you're confronted with somebody that disapproves of an action that you took, especially when the disapproval includes the destruction of another human life or the hurting of somebody else. There's two responses you take. One response is to look at it, to come to the conclusion that that is what you did, and to attempt in some way to make amends or to inform or to educate or whatever else it is. The other tends to be to double down. To essentially to try to find not only um, an economic argument for what you did, but to find a moral argument for what you did. And there's a reason why safe, legal, and rare was never going to be the default position in perpetuity for the Democratic Party. And it's because whenever you're attempting to justify something like abortion, you will always have to have a moral argument in order to truly justify it in your own mind. You won't be satisfied with anything else. Ultimately, if you believe that what happened was is that an innocent human life had to die, if the reason why they had to die was because you wanted to finish college, you're never going to be satisfied ultimately with that answer. At least I hope not. That's a fairly narcissistic way to look at the world. Somebody else had to die because I had dreams that didn't include them. That's a, that's a pretty dark way to look at the world. And so they will try to find, and they have attempted to create moral reasons for this. That is why they've, they've couched this as women's rights, reproductive rights, reproductive justice, equity. That's why they've couched it in those terms, because now having abortion is no longer a necessary evil. Having abortion now is an expression of female empowerment. And if you're going to tell me that's not true, then I'm going to ask you, why does Planned Parenthood have Shout Your Abortion t-shirts? Why are they now having abortion parties? It's because they need to. They need to in order to sustain their industry. And this is a billion-dollar industry within the United States.
3: Billion-dollar industry.
0: And so it's important to understand that this was always going to move to that argument. And the problem is is that once you have convinced a generation of people, and specifically young women, that this is a fundamental component of their rights, and if, if this goes, all of their other rights go with it. If this goes, it simply opens up the floodgates, for the handmaid's tale version of reality, that what we really want is for women to not be equal before the law, to not have shared economic opportunities, to not have property rights, to not have voting rights. That's the argument that they're making to these women, that this is a right along with all the others. And if you let this one go, you'll lose the others eventually because that's what they really want. They really want to control you. And this gives you empowerment over your own body. I heard one actress, I think it was Laura Dunham, that said she didn't really feel like she was a truly empowered Lena, woman. Lena, Dunham. Lena Lena Dunham. She didn't really feel like she was a truly empowered woman because she'd never had an abortion. So that's the that's the direction that this is moving within the cultural space. I gotta ask you a question. Do you think do you think I'm gonna convince someone like that to vote for a politician that is going to restrict abortion in any way if they see it as a fundamental right? upon which other rights hinge, if they see it as an expression of empowerment, and if they see any opposition to it as a desire to essentially oppress and control them, they're not voting for the politician to vote for that. They're not voting for that. In fact, it's quite the opposite. They've become an incredibly effective and loyal voting base for the Democratic Party. The most loyal voting demographic for the Democrats at this stage is what college educated, single white women.
2: Yep. The awfuls affluent white female liberal.
0: That's not my acronym. (laughs) No, that's mine. (laughs) But the point is, the point is, is that that's what's going on right now. And so the real question that we have to ask ourselves is, is not how do we create? And again, I'm not giving up on the legislative component of this. I want to make that clear. But if, if, let's just say, on Tuesday, we would have taken the House by two seats. We would have kept our two-seat majority. And let's just say that we would have taken the Senate by one seat. and We would have theoretically had enough to pass everything that we needed to do. I'm going to tell you right now, you honestly think we would have got a life at conception bill passed? Nope. There's no way. There is no way. Republicans wouldn't have voted for it. Even ones that might philosophically agree with it wouldn't have voted for it because they would have been scared at what the electoral backlash would have been. And guess what? They wouldn't have been wrong. And this is the part that I need the pro-life movement to understand. They wouldn't have been wrong. This issue motivates Democrat voters in a way that no other issue does. And the corresponding motivation on the Republican side is not equal to it. That's the reality. That is the situation on the ground. And if you want me to continue to go to Richmond and fight with no bullets, I'll do it. I'll do it because I believe in this. But even if by some miracle we got it passed, you want to know what would happen? In two years, there would be a backlash, they'd get into power, and they'd erase all of it. Because the underlying cultural conditions are not there to sustain it. We are trying to legislate through law that which we have failed to convince people to truly believe. And if you're not at least trying to do both of those things, you are setting yourself up for failure and quite frankly, you're lying to people about what can actually be achieved in the real world. So the argument that I'm making is that until we, on the pro-life movement, do a better job of actually explaining that the reason why we believe this is rooted in the sanctity of innocent human life and then demonstrate this in our own lives. And here's what I mean by this. When you're, this starts so young, when your kids are receiving sex education at a public school, they're being taught a narrative about sex, which has been largely influenced by Planned Parenthood. If you don't believe that, Go look at where roughly 70 to 80% of the grants for sex education training go to. They go to Planned Parenthood-affiliated and Planned Parenthood-approved sex education programs. They're not telling your kids to abstain from sex. They may claim that they have an abstinence till marriage program. I am telling you right now, that is not the motivation. Does Planned Parenthood benefit from your child abstaining from sex, or do they financially benefit from your child engaging in reckless sexual behavior? When a third of their income comes from performing abortions, when another significant source of their income comes from politicians subsidizing their activities... Do you really think Planned Parenthood is going in and approving curriculum, which is going to tell your child to abstain from sex until they're married? The new UN guidance that's coming down with respect to comprehensive sex education wants teachers to be able to teach your kids at a relatively young age about the pleasures of sex. See, once upon a time, sex education was rooted in a couple of concepts. Basic human biology, understanding what's going on with your body as you're going through adolescence. Consequences associated with engaging in sex, sexually transmitted diseases, pregnancy, things of that nature. And the reason why they focused on that was because the overall narrative was supposed to be, kids, you're probably not at an age or a level of cognitive or emotional maturity to be able to handle pregnancy or STDs, so maybe this isn't a good idea for you to engage in it. Right? That that was what sex education was about. That is not what sex education is about right now. Sex education now has been opened up as an opportunity to expose your children to the full cornucopia of sexual activity, preference, identity, fetish, and it is being taught by people that you don't know. Bottom line, you don't know them. And they're having these conversations with your kids. And I'm going to tell you something. I sit on the education committee, at least for now, I probably won't next year. When we try to do things like we want an opt in provision, not an opt out provision. And the reason why we want an opt in provision is because we want parents to actively say, Yes, I want my child to go to this course, because there's a higher degree of probability that the parent will be engaged in what is actually being taught. We got told that was dangerous because sex education is critical and 90% of people actually want it. And this actually prevents teen pregnancy. By the way, it doesn't prevent teen pregnancy. You know what it actually prevents to some degree? The one argument, and, they, and every once in a while they'll, they'll use this, what it prevents is, and it doesn't even prevent this on the long run, but they'll say, well, it, it's reducing out-of-wedlock births. It, it's, re, it's, it's reducing teen mothers. That's not because you've actually reduced the amount of sex that teenagers are having. It's because now they go to the abortion clinic and they get an abortion, or they take a pill without any real, without any real understanding or knowledge of the physical and emotional toll that that's going to play out on them as a young woman. But then when they've done it, now all of a sudden they come around them. It's like you're one of us now. And they're all mean to you and they're all horrible. And anybody out here that disagrees with this is trying to take away your rights and they're trying to condemn you and they're trying to judge you and they don't know who you are. That's the narrative that they're saying about us and it's working. And it's working in part because of the sex education that your kid is getting at a relatively young age, we're talking like 8, 9, 10 years old. They are talking to your kids about this and they are not taking your kids to the sex education you might have experienced 30, 40 years ago.
1: And when that young woman has had an abortion, they've created a lifelong passionate activist.
0: Yes. Brian Betts is telling me you are just, (laughs) you are just flat wrong in this. Brian, no, I'm not. I have read the literature. I sit on the committees. I see the curriculum. No, I'm not. The bottom line is, is that any, anyone in this chat, maybe you think you have more experience actually looking at the policy decisions that are being made and what is being pushed. I'm sorry. I'm not wrong. I am seeing the curriculum that is coming up more and more with respect to what they want to teach in sex education and the direction it's going. And I'm not wrong. I'm
2: just not. Susie left an interesting comment that I replied to. Hinted at the, the zombie apocalypse and how the arc of history bends towards it. Um, you know, speaking of the zombie apocalypse, part of the, I don't necessarily think that, that, that social conservatives have necessarily articulated this quite well, in part because unfortunately they were mocked and derided and ridiculed and, and quite frankly ignored, called uncool, all, all these type of things. And unfortunately, I was one of the people doing that for many years when I was a lot younger. And in retrospect, much of what they tried to warn us about in the 90s and early 2000s ended up coming true or is coming true. But one of the the things that I don't think that they necessarily articulated quite well was the consequences of a culture in which degeneracy <laughs> or decadence is rewarded and, and openly encouraged and celebrated. And what I mean by that is, if you go to you know uh, a place like Reddit or Twitter, which I know are not necessarily hotbeds for you know sane intellectual discourse, but if if you go to places on the internet where you actually see large groups of leftists con- you know congregate on the internet, the type of rhetoric that you see coming out of there— granted, it's different from real life—but the type of rhetoric that you see coming out of there is the sort of rhetoric that you would see like well into the, you know, we're in the in the collapse of the Roman Empire phase of the life cycle of civilization, right? And you've got to ask yourself at some point, how how did how did this happen? How did we go from, you know, the 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 idea of like the nuclear family and um you know the, the 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 traditional American values that people think of when they think of the past, right? That conservatives nostalgically look back at and that liberals you know, usually kind of ridicule is never actually having existed. When you think about how we went from, you know, the type of society that we had 50, 60, 70, 80, 100 years ago versus the one that we have today, you kind of have to ask how we got to that point. And we've done whole podcasts on that, right? We've talked about, you know, the emergence of cultural Marxism. We've talked about Antonio Gramsci. We've talked about, you know, the Leviathan and the cathedral, all those things, right? But on, on this particular issue, I do think that the whole idea of you know women's bodily autonomy and reproductive rights and stuff like that are, are actually really easy justifications for something, when in reality, what it's actually pushing for and what most of the activists that defend this don't even might realize is that what this ultimately pushes for is the destruction of one of the central pillars that upholds a stable society. And this is something that social conservatives tried to warn us about, but were unsuccessful in doing so, in part because of their own fault and also in part because people, quite frankly, didn't listen to them. And what I mean by that is, is the destruction of the family is, in many respects, one of the primary goals of the new generation of cultural Marxists in order to bring about their vision. I mean, Gramsci said that that socialism must be the the religion that destroys Christianity and Christianity one of the pillars that Christianity is built upon is the idea of a a stable a, a stable family. The nuclear family is the thing upon which civilization has been built for thousands of years. It's one of the pillars of western civilization alongside Christianity and the rule of law. And when you make it inconsequential to destroy a family and you make it easier to destroy a family and you also and, and building a family requires a lot of hard work as well, right? And so so when you, when you strip away all of the work that has to go into building it, you make it, you know, basically consequence-free and you make it easier <laughs> to avoid said consequences when you engage in them. Ultimately, a lot of these other societal problems that, that we're starting to run into, everything from mental health to, you know, people losing their minds on the internet, like, a lot of that stems from the destruction of the family, and you've done speeches on the floor of the House of Delegates about this. And it's funny how how, the, how our friends in the media, you know, our friends in the cathedral, will go out there and say like Delegate Freitas suggests that abortion causes mass shootings. I remember that speech. Mm-hmm. Remember that? First off, that wasn't even what you were saying. You were making an argument about about gun policy, and second off, you were citing a Brookings Institute. Study Last time I checked, Brookings Institute was not a right-wing uh, you know, think tank. And second off, you didn't even endorse the position. Yeah. You were simply saying, we could look at this, this, and this in order to determine why mass shootings are taking place. But we're not going to have that debate because the other side wants to keep calling us Nazis. Mm-hmm. That was the argument that you were trying to make. And the media instead ran with, Nick Freitas suggests
0: that this. And so... <sighs> The, 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 the other, the other issue I have here and, and, and Brian is is trying to send me stuff over in circle to try to prove that I'm wrong. And it's like, look, I'm, I'm looking at the Planned Parenthood curriculum right now. And it's, and it's, it's talking about now, again, this is for 16, 16 uh, year old students, but it's talking about demonstrating two ways to talk about safer sex with a partner. Okay. So it's telling my 16 year old that it's perfectly okay for them to have sex with their partner and just to discuss the safe ways to do it. Not to mention the fact that in the Virginia, right? In Virginia, I'm, I'm a legislator in Virginia, Brian. Okay. You had the Virginia, I think it was Department of Health that was sending text messages to kids that was allowing them to come in and secretly talk with adults about sexual activity you You had other things going out from the Fairfax County School District where they were asking thirteen year olds about questions with respect to, have you ever had oral sex? right? so i, I am i am I'm sorry. I, I am tired of being told this isn't happening now now if if there was if there was something I said about grant funding when actually it's sixty percent, not seventy percent, fine. But don't tell me it isn't happening.
3: Hold on. So basically, he's saying that the Statistics say that more sex education has brought about a downturn in um, teen pregnancy and abortion. I'd like to know what date did this begin? Because are you talking about over the span of when, from the time that that um, sex education was introduced and. At to now? Or are you talking about before it was introduced to now? Because the numbers are, are, I'm sorry, they don't bear out completely. And here's another factor that you may not have thought of. Uh, of, And this is one where the pro-lifers think, oh my gosh, we're making all this headway on abortion. Look, the abortion numbers are going down. Except that it correlates Extremely closely to when the abortion pill, the morning after pill, was introduced, and they don't count those as abortion, Brian. But that's exactly what they are. They used to actually have to go in to get something like that, take it, and then it was counted as an abortion. Now they get it off the shelf at your CVS or whatever, and they just go and take it, and it's never calculated into the numbers ever at that point, and so. It's crazy to me that it's like we're going to go ahead and hide the ball and pretend the numbers have gone down. No, they have not. No, they haven't. The abortion pill is being used at extreme high rates. So until you add that one in, I'm not going to accept your numbers.
2: The problem is, is that ultimately we're, we're addressing we're addressing the wrong argument here, the wrong problem here. And, and I was doing a terrible job earlier of trying to articulate this in part because I was trying to formulate what I was trying to say while I was saying it, which I don't recommend that you do. The problem that we have is not that this statistic is misleading or they're misleading us about this or they're lying about this or they're fudging the numbers here or there. The problem is, is that there's a huge number of people in society right now who are utterly convinced that this is a fundamental individual moral justification for for, for good. Mm-hmm. Not, not that it serves a utilitarian purpose, but that it's, it's worthy of celebration. And that's what I was trying to get to about how social conservatives warned us about this in like the 80s, 90s, and early 2000s. They warned us about the consequences of making it easy and celebrating things that result in the destruction of the family. And look at the clown world that we're currently living in right now. I would, I will be one of the last people to admit that, that, you know, the moral majority people were right, but guess what? They were. And I, I feel bad for arguing against them all the time. I remember when Nick first got elected, one of the things that I, I got into a brief argument with him about over text message. This was right after he got elected. So eight years ago, what this week, Mm -hmm. um, back in 2015, I was, uh, showing him some bills that, that were being introduced in the coming session in Virginia. And one of them was a, 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 on an, a slightly unrelated topic. It was about it was about gay marriage. And I remember arguing, well, we should vote for the bill to basically remove the um, state constitutional ban on, on gay marriage because it's alienating millennial voters. Zoomers weren't old enough to vote yet, but millennials of myself were in their early 20s still. And Nick was pushing back and quite forcefully so when i was saying but you don't understand this is going to you know service an electoral purpose and millennials are really upset about this and Nick's like yeah millennials are really upset about a bunch of stuff but guess what you know real life is kind of tough and <laughs> and and i remember at the time just thinking this is just stupid boomer con level i love nick to death we agree 99% of the time but you know he's wrong and i'm right and you know what i remember all these people saying Back when all the Supreme Court cases and all of this stuff was being litigated in the court system about gay marriage in places like California and stuff like that. And I remember all the memes on the internet. And there was one meme on the internet that was like, here's a pie chart of things that will happen in terms of likelihood. And it was like, you know, the zombie apocalypse will happen or the economy will crash or people will start grooming kids and stuff like that. They were listing like all these things. World War Three will start. And then finally, one of them was just gay people get married. And then the Redditors were like, "Haha! it turns out that, you know, guess what? Conservatives, we must mourn for them for losing this court case because they have lost absolutely nothing. And then you look back, you look back at the the absolute mockery that these people on the left were projecting towards these, these social conservatives on the gay marriage issue. And then you look at where we are today. And you have people that are part of the LGBTQ community, you have people that are gay, that are homosexual, that are lesbian, that are coming out there saying, the left is going too far on the TQ part of this. You have people that used to walk in like pride parades in the 80s and 70s that are now saying the leftists, the leftists have gone too far on this. That's where we're at now. Like, and the reason I bring up this story is not because I think necessarily that, 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 that they're morally the same thing. I think that it is, is completely amoral to, to murder an innocent human being in the womb. And that that is a completely different issue aside from the question of something like gay marriage. The reason I bring this up is because both of these things were attacks on the traditional family structure in different ways and for different, and you could absolutely argue for different motivations. The the thing that unites the two though, is the consequence of what happened when they both succeeded Mm -hmm. and Again, we we've done whole podcasts on this. Think about the rise in mental illness. Think about remember the the, the podcast that we did on on the the um, personality disorder pandemic. Yeah, like there's there's statistic after statistic after statistic showing people under the age of thirty, especially people under the age of twenty, are just in a social crisis unlike anything ever before. At a time when we have such vast abundance and wealth, and and we're living in a in a technological golden age in many respects, and yet mentally, physiologically, spiritually, certainly, we're living in a dark age. And then you have to wonder why, how on earth did this happen? Was, what, was it actually harder to, 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 to live a hundred years ago? Was life really, really so much better in terms of material wealth? No, a hundred years ago, Calvin Coolidge lost his son to an infection after he was playing tennis and got a splinter in his toe mm-hmm. for crying out loud. The president of the United States, lost his like eight-year-old or nine-year-old son to a splinter. Life was brutal a hundred years ago. And yet the, the mental illness pandemic that we have today, that didn't exist a hundred years ago. So then you have to ask why. I would absolutely argue one of the things that contributed to it is the complete destruction of the family structure. And yes, one of the things that has led to that is things like abortion, especially abortion on demand, paid at taxpayer
0: expense, I might add. Yeah. Let's get to a couple of uh super chats. Go ahead and uh Yeah, I, I see it. Okay. Uh Bandit eight four eight said, Correct me if I'm wrong, where we lose the culture issues um in these if these issues come up, the left makes their argument, and then we react versus getting the message out there effectively before them. Ben, I, I think that's I think that's definitely a part of it. I think also is the fact that when you look at culturally shaping institutions, the media, academia, public education, Hollywood, arts and entertainment, just our, our viewpoints are significantly underrepresented. And so it, it gives this impression that nobody thinks the way we do, and that our positions are very unpopular. And Now what we've seen is in those same culturally shaping institutions, it's not just that this, we have a different perspective, it's that our perspective is mean and evil and rude and oppressive and would needs to be eliminated. Um, Andrew uh, Beeman, thank you very much for the the super chat. Uh, So, how do we apply the societal leverage? I have said for a while that quote: "Get married young, have as many kids as you can support without the government, and educate them outside of government schools." Then the left remove themselves from the gene pool, but that seems a bit dark. (laughs) So, Andrew, here's what I would here's what I would say. I mean, obviously, uh, conservative people that are conservatives, typically religious uh, conservatives, tend to have larger families, more kids than people who are not like woke progressives. I mean, we you don't. you don't see many people on the right running around with signs saying don't procreate because you're killing the planet. So yeah, there's an argument to be made. The, the issue that we have right now, and this kind of goes to what we've said before is there, there's more than one way to raise children. And right now a lot of children are being raised within a school system. A lot of children are being raised within university systems. They're being raised in a number of other areas that don't necessarily reflect the values of the parents that have them. And parents are going to have to decide what they're willing to accept. That's, that's what this comes down to. When you say get married young, have kids and educate them outside of the government. I agree with you. (laughs) Now I will say this. I think people should get married when they find the right person and they're, and they're mature enough to do it. However, um, I, I, I got married young and I think it was one of the best decisions that I ever made. I think that we've done far too much to encourage people to believe in, in young people to believe that they shouldn't get married young, that they need to go out there and experience life before they get married. And it creates this impression that what they really need to do is rack up a body count with a bunch of people that they don't really love or care about and then go have a bunch of experiences before they settle down and get married. And that's an absurd way to look at life. Um, my my, I feel like the most exciting parts of my life started when I got married. I, I didn't want to go out there and have a bunch of life experiences. I certainly didn't want to go out there and have a bunch of meaning, meaningless trysts with other people. I wanted to go out and have and, and build a life with my wife, and and kids were a part of that, and professional goals were a part of that, and personal goals were a part of that. But they largely became our goals. And and part of what we've done within society and and, and abortion as a part of this is that we've created this hedonistic obsession with self where it's all about you. Now, look, I don't think that none of it's about you, right? Like I I think that, that some of it has to do with your individual needs, wants, and desires, of course. But it's not all about you. And when you treat people like it is all about them and it's all about your sexual experience and your sexual identity and your goals and your objectives and your dreams. And if somebody, and, and look, if, if a baby has to be aborted in order to make way for that, so be it, because I'm certainly not going to modify my own behavior to ensure that doesn't happen, right? When, when, you, when you elevate this, not only is socially acceptable, but socially celebrated, you get more of it. And, and I completely agree that that's a big part of the problem. But if we're going to, to your point, leveraging this societally, and, and, and I've said this before and I'll say it again, the pro-life movement wins. Not when abortion is outlawed. The pro-life movement ends when people no longer have a desire to have them. Where it's not even considered acceptable in their own minds. That's where we win. That Now, that that's not to say that there aren't battles that we can win before we get to that ultimate conclusion. And, and I recognize that we probably will never get there. But ultimately the, the way that we do this is the person that's being told by the abortion industry or by culture in general, that what life is all about is going out there and racking up all of these individualized hedonistic experiences that it's, it's not about getting married because that ties you down. It, it's, it's not about having children because that ties you down the best argument against that is to do the exact opposite of what culture is saying and prove that they're full of crap. That this is the best part of life is sharing it with someone that you love and respect and admire and want to build a life with the best part of life is, is watching your child be born and, and then having the privilege of, of being able to raise them and care for them and, and be the person that they know is in their corner no matter what happens and to, and to help raise them in the way that they should go. And then watch them do the exact same thing, build their own life with another person that they love and admire, and then have kids. I can't wait to meet my grandchildren. It's going to be an awesome experience. And so, yeah, to your point, um, the, the best argument against all of this is to live your life in, in in opposition to what culture is currently shoving down everyone's throats. But I will tell you right now, the big battlefield is for our kids because your kids are hearing a very different narrative in their school system. Your kids are hearing a very different narrative within their sex education. And and even if you even if you think that the the school's role is to provide some some element of sex education, do you think it's their role to talk to them about sexual identity, sexual preferences, do you think it's their role to talk to them about sexual experiences, to be able to get into specifics and different techniques of having sex? Do you think that's their role? I don't. And I don't think it's produced better results. I think it's reduced a far more promiscuous society where, where people treat sex as if it's just something about you meeting your own physical needs. No concern for the other person. No real concern for what it could mean for a potential child. No concern really for your own emotional and spiritual well-being. We, we've just, we've just diminished, we've diminished it to nothing more than a set of response to stimuli. And it, and it is supposed to be so much more than that. And it can be, as long as you don't follow the advice of these people. All right, we got some more Super Chats here. Uh, Gun Gus Mu, thank you for the Super Chat. Did you know that all large pro-life organizations have no desire to abolish abortion? Please watch Babies Still Murdered Here.
1: As someone who's worked in a pro-life organization for two years, I can attest that this is not true. Uh, the movie is probably about some location that is outlawed abortion, and it's showing that abortions are still taking place and that you know they're not good. Uh, but that still shouldn't mean that we should not try to outlaw abortion.
0: I, gun, gun guys. So I'm going to tell you this. I, I've, um, I've worked with some large pro-life organizations. I think some operate better. Than, can you please scroll back up? Thanks. Um, some of them are, are more effective than others. Uh, some of them, you know, maybe to some degree, there's some organizations out there that they're just really good at raising money, and they like having the cause because it, it gives them an ability to raise money instead of actually doing anything about it. I, I certainly believe that that's, that's possible. But I, I want to go so far as to say that all pro-life organizations out there have no desire to end abortion. When when you talk to Kristen Hawkins, when you talk to Lila Rose, uh, when, when you talk to some of the other people I have uh, on this on this issue, Virginia Society of Human Life, uh, they're desperate. They're desperate to end it. They really do. They, they really they have dedicated their life to going out there and, and making the argument for this and, and doing the practical things that are necessary on both the cultural and legislative side. So I, I have no doubt that there's some organizations out there that may be a little bit more mercenary in nature, but I I wouldn't paint it with so broad a brush. Um, okay. What's the next one we got here? Um, okay. We're gonna have
3: to be very quick on these answers.
0: Okay, I'll be quick. I'll be quick. I know we're running. Uh, okay. Jen Kemp said, Ohio resident here yesterday was a sad day for our state. The language was intentionally very vague and leaves so many loopholes open for other atrocities. Thank you for continuing to speak truth. No, thank you, Jen. That, that has been one of the biggest problems here is that um, the way the language is written in so many of these bills, it, it's, not, it's not like a piece of legislation is going to say it is now the law of the land that abortion can exist all the way up to the point of birth with no exceptions. That's not the way laws are written. Right. it is usually There's usually a lot more vagary involved there to where you can look at something and you can sit there and be confused about what are they actually trying to do here and what does this actually allow for? And it's one of the reasons why some of these organizations that read this and understand the legislative process and understand what the consequences are gonna be, the second and third order effects are gonna be, are so valuable to this argument. We just gotta do a better job. But ultimately, again, I, I think the real issue the real issue rests on the cultural side of this. We have to do a better job winning over the culture so that when we can pass legislation, it will actually stick. All right. Uh, Joey W. uh, Thank you for the super chat. Does the morning after pill kill a baby or does it prevent conception? Honestly asking. Um, uh, It kills the baby. It kills the
3: baby. It it is meant to get rid of a fertilized egg, which that's conception. It's meant to flush that. If the
1: egg is not implanted yet, it will keep it from implanting. And if it has implanted, it will shed the uterine lining. But it should be said that the morning after pill is not the abortion pill. The abortion pill is a two-step process. Yeah. The first pill is m- mis- Prestone I don't remember the name of the second one, but the first pill actually kills the baby. The second pill actually forces the baby to um, expel. expel. And so it's very important to understand that those are two different things.
3: But even the morning after pill, so the abortion pill definitely, it's like... Yeah. yeah. But even the morning after pill, it prevents implantation after conception. So conception okay. happens... Then implantation happens. It prevents implantation. So it flushes a conceived yeah. embryo.
0: Scroll down. Got a couple more here. Uh, Isaac, again, thank you. Statistics are manipulated all the time, especially by Planned Parenthood. Why don't they report the stats on women that die in Planned Parenthood clinics? Um, so here's what I will tell you about Planned Parenthood uh, statistics. One of my favorite one is when they they throw up that little pie chart and they say that, well, abortion is only 3% of what we do. Okay. By that logic, I can prove that McDonald's is not so much a fast food restaurant as it is a napkin and straw dispensary. Yeah, that's because if you look at all the total napkins that are used, if you look at all of the straws that are used, if you look at like the free playgrounds, well, that that comprises a significant portion of what McDonald's actually does. But then if we shifted it to the actual revenue, then we would find out why McDonald's actually exists. Right? And it's the same thing with Planned Parenthood. They like to talk about, oh, it's only 3%. Well, yeah, when you count all the things that you have to do before you can get the abortion, especially the things that are necessary before you can get it, and you and you say, well, that's not abortion. That's a different procedure. That's intellectually dishonest. And Planned Parenthood is horribly intellectually dishonest with respect to what it does and what it's there for. Um, so, no, that's that's a good point. And, and look, the, the stats across the board here, um, I think are just, again, my, my issue with the sex education, my, my major issue with the sex education is that more and more schools are not conducting sex education from the standpoint of, I'm going to, I'm going to inform you about the objective truth about human anatomy and biology. We're going to talk about, you know, exclusively about STDs and, and pregnancies and things like that. It, it is, it is moving more and more to a far more intimate discussion and a discussion that quite frankly, they do take, they do take means to hide from parents. And again, I'm, I'm not blaming Planned Parenthood for all of this. I'm blaming them for a significant portion of it. But there are other institutions and organizations out there. Again, we saw this in Virginia where they were sending out text messages to children encouraging them to go to their website where, where you can have these intimate discussions about sex and ask the questions that you were too embarrassed to ask your parents. That happened. That happened. So there is a push, there is a drive, there is a move to be able to make these conversations be far more intimate, in-depth, and I would argue highly inappropriate at younger and younger ages. That is a thing. It is happening. Um, anyway, all right. I, I think the, the last thing that I want to kind of lay out here right now um, is I'm not advocating that there's no legislative role here but I am saying that politics is downstream from culture. And one of the best ways that I think we need to we need to really direct our energy right now has to do with where are your kids being educated? I have two daughters. One of them is engaged. One of them is about to turn 16. I have absolutely no concern about whether or not they would ever have an abortion. And it's not simply because of their position – on the status of innocent human life and the desire to protect it. It's because of what we also taught them about healthy relationships and sex. We didn't outsource that to our public school, right? And we didn't just tell them, don't do it. We sat down, we explained things. When it was age appropriate, we explained things about it. But one of the most important things that we gave our children, and this is critical, we didn't sit there and tell our kids that this is, you know, Dirty and ugly and bad and you shouldn't do it and inappropriate. No, what what we told our kids is that one day you're going to find that person that God has for you that you love, that you cherish, that you respect. And the question you're going to have to ask yourself is how much baggage do you want to bring into that relationship? Or do you want to be able to say that this was something that you saved for the confine of your marriage and your relationship with them? And we didn't just do that because it's the morally correct thing to do. We did that because we honestly believe it's going to set them up to have the the best relationship possible within that marriage to be able to experience all of that within the fullness that it was meant to be experienced. And you're not going to dilute that by having a bunch of meaningless relationships with a bunch of other people that you were never in in an emotional or, or intellectual maturity to have or spiritual maturity to have. So that's step one. Don't outsource education about these sort of things to institutions and organizations that believe abortion is perfectly fine and and a, a demonstration of female empowerment. If you are outsourcing your kids' education to institutions that believe that and will tell them that and have absolutely no moral qualms about discussing all these, well, then don't be surprised when your kids view this topic very differently than you do. You have to take ownership of that. But along with teaching them, you also have to show them what a healthy relationship looks like. One one of the things that I took as a huge compliment is one of my kids' friends told my daughter, you know, it's kind of cute the way that your mom and dad flirt with each other. You can really tell they love one another. Now, we don't do inappropriate stuff in front of our kids, but do we tease each other? Do, we, do, we, do our kids have absolutely no doubt in the world that we love one another, that we're in love with one another? No, they don't. They absolutely believe that. They know that. And hopefully what we've done is we've provided for our kids an, an, an image of something that they would want to replicate in their own lives with their own spouse. This is key. And I know people are probably looking at this going, well, Nick, what does this have to do with abortion? The thing that really stops abortions is healthy relationships between men and women that have made a lifelong commitment to each other, that want to raise children together. They're the people that can't imagine a world where you can just discard human life because it's standing in the ways of your your professional goals. And so that's where this argument begins. Yes, we have to make the intellectual argument with respect to the sanctity of innocent human life. Yes, we have to be able to show the various statistics and figures which demonstrate that when you diminish human life in the, in the instance of abortion, it has a ripple effect across the rest of society. It's not isolated to this one issue. Yes, we have to be able to demonstrate what the proper education is for our children with respect to sex. And yes, yeah, spoiler alert, you can't outsource it. To a, to a secular school system that has very different views from you and then expect your children to, to take your word over theirs. And yes, we have to be able to demonstrate what a healthy family looks like. We have to be able to demonstrate the benefits of this so that when your kid is thinking about sex, they're thinking about it in the proper, concept or the proper con, uh, context with respect to within a marriage. And when they're thinking about kids one day, then when they think about children, when they think about the prospect of getting pregnant, that's something to celebrate not something to lament or to dread. And then finally, and this is, this is one of the areas where I think one of the greatest ministries that we have within the pro-life movement is the crisis pregnancy centers. It's the idea of stepping in and telling someone when they find themselves in this situation and they're looking for other options other than abortion, you're telling them that they're not alone. You're not sitting there in judgment of them. People do things. Things happen to people that they didn't anticipate. You're not judging them. One of the biggest friends of Planned Parenthood is a pregnant woman in isolation. A pregnant woman in isolation who doesn't know what she's going to do and has no idea how she's going to do this alone is fodder for Planned Parenthood. And they will tell her that what she's doing is best for her and best for her child. And brave. And brave and noble. And we need someone else to come alongside her and say, no, no, the noble thing is to be able to give your child life, is to be able to do the one thing for your child that nobody else can do, and that is to be able to give him a self-harbor. And if you want to raise your child, we'll be there to help. And if you want to put your child up for adoption, we will be there to help. And for those that have already had an abortion and are wondering and, and look back on it with regret, it's also about coming alongside those people and saying there is redemption, there is forgiveness, that this is not something that you have to live with and that you can now use your voice because I will tell you right now, some of the most powerful testimony I have heard is from a woman that comes down to the General Assembly who says, I had five. I had five and I was told this was something that it is not. You want to talk about the most vehement opponent of Planned Parenthood in the abortion industry, it is that woman because she feels like she was absolutely lied to. So that's the argument. The argument is, is that we are, going to, we are going to have to do a better job of creating a culture which celebrates life if we want a legal structure which is going to reinforce it. Because if you tried for the legal structure before you have the culture, and I'm not saying you shouldn't stop trying, because one of the things I've learned about politics and the legislative process is that sometimes it takes many attempts to get where you need to go. But the moment we think that a law solves this problem is the moment that we have lost Because ultimately, as I said earlier, the real victory is when every woman that finds herself in that situation finds herself in a situation that she was prepared for, anticipated, wanted, with a loving husband who's going to be there for her and be there for their child and then raising them together. All of civilization depends on how we answer this question. All right, we got a couple more uh, super chats here. Dogface Pony Soldier said, "Saving uh, saying 97% of Planned parents' services are not abortion is about as intellectually honest as saying 97% of scientists agree about climate change. It's all gaslighting and it seems to work. And I, and I would say that it, it works because a lot of the people that want to believe it is just that, they want to believe it. They want to believe it either because they think it provides empowerment, they think it provides them options, or they think it provides solace for something that's already taken place. Here's the last thing I'll end on. <clears throat> because we focused a lot right today about the woman and and her choices. Um, One of my favorite sayings to men out there is that if you're not ready to be a daddy, don't do daddy things. If you do find yourself in a situation where you have, um, you have assisted in the pregnancy of of a woman that you're not married to, and you are not willing to immediately go to her and say, I will stand by you and I will help you raise this child, whether it's as her husband or just as the father of your child. If you're not willing to do that, I have no respect for you. You're not a man. Don't even call yourself one. Now, I recognize that there's some men that do step up and do that. And the mother chooses to abort anyways. And I understand that you have no legal recourse. I understand that. I'm not talking to you. I'm talking about the man out there that has a, loves the idea of abortion because it allows him to be the licentious wretch he is. And the amount of devastation and destruction you are wreaking on society is probably one of the worst things that you could possibly do to a woman and to that child. So never be that sort of man. Be the sort of man that actually lives up to your own actions. And if you do get her pregnant, well then you stand by her and you stand by your child. You have an obligation to do that. All right. I know this is a weighty issue. I thank everybody for watching. I thank you all for the super chats and the engagement here. Um, Absolutely... Happy to have more conversations within our community chat, within Circle. We have the, uh, the issues for that on the show notes page. Um, it's a passionate issue. Um, and obviously you can see the way we feel about it. <laughs> um, but I, I, I thank everyone for sticking with us. And, and hopefully, hopefully, the end state will be this. The end state will be at a, at a point where I would love to live in a world where the law wasn't even necessary because the whole concept of it was just unimaginable because we live in a society where we value human life from the moment it comes into existence to its natural death, because it is something to celebrate. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you to good ranchers for sponsoring our show and we will see you all next episode.